Hi everybody, you're very welcome. My name is Sheila de Corsi and I'm in charge of children's uh, television in Orti in Ireland, which is the state broadcaster in Ireland. You're very welcome to From Tokenism to Truthful. Um, we're here for the next 70 minutes. We've got an awful lot to get through. This morning we're looking at inclusivity. We've got a terrific panel. I'll come to them later. But let's look first at this is how it is sometimes portrayed. The fact is, this is an area where we need to be better. Well, of course, Anna, yes. Although, I have to say, inclusivity is an area where we have actually made some real progress. Cool. Have we? Yes. You so have. You've got the dude with a crazy beard doing the weather, for a start. Well, hang on, it's not a crazy beard. It's like, hey, guys, suck on that. Brilliant. I mean, Lucy, would it be worth thinking about trying to put some numbers on our aspirations in those areas? I mean, if you look at the research on this, I mean, I've got some figures here, I don't know. With just over a year now until the BBC's Royal Charter is due either for renewal or some other thing, Lucy's first big task in her new post has been to look at ways of setting new BBC inclusivity targets that are more challenging than the old ones. Because there is an argument. If you look at the proportion of BAME and LGBT people out there in the wider population and then use those as the basis for your task, Targets. Yes, right. Brilliant. So what you're committing to is the idea of a fair reflection of society as it actually is. So hang on. I'm, I'm sorry, Lucy, I'm sorry, and I might be being a bit stupid here, but how's this going to work? How will it work? Well, yeah, because if you add the proportion of Asian or Asian British, black or black British, and mix multiple together, uh, then you get, what, 11.9%, say 12%, Lucy, right? Uh, that's, yes, that's the current BAME figure, yes. Cool. So I've just done a quick back of the fag packet thing here, and according to this in news, I'd have to sack four black, Asian or mixed multiple presenters straight away. No, no. And I'm sorry, but with the greatest respect to everyone involved, I'm not going to bloody do that. No, that's not actually how it works. No, no. No, because in that case, Neil, you'd be ahead of the target already, which is great, so you wouldn't actually have to do anything. Okay, there's obviously a lot of recognition in the room of that, that scene. It's something that resonates. And it may be satire, but many of us have seen strands of that scene played out at some point. Um, there's a powerful argument here at play. We've called this session Tokenism to Truthful because properly understanding young audiences now uh, genuinely gathering, catering for their changing tastes and interests and accurate, accurately reflecting the audience back at itself is the only way that you'll achieve success in the future. The audiences are changing and that's for the whole industry as well as the individual. And it's a bold statement but we're here to examine it very carefully. Um, the panel has been chosen because they're examples of how to do it well. They've all got personal experience in different ways and we're hoping you'll go away having learned something with takeaway bits of information. And they also have strong views on why other areas are doing it too slowly so we'll hear from them in a moment. But first we want to find out who's in the audience. So this is a put your hands up, which you're very used to. Who here are television producers? Great. Um, commissioners, any commissioners in the room who are willing to put up their hands? Mm. Um, we've got digital content producers, MD working in the digital area. Okay. Um, are there many people here who are hiring staff or teams responsibility for, for recruiting people? A few, that's great. And uh, people making, yeah, people in a hiring position, we've got that. So it's, there, there, there's a, a diverse, I think, range of experience here. Um, and we're going to put you to a test. We have a short quiz to see how much you know your audience. So first of all, a couple of notes to yourself. How many people said their language was other than English in the last UK census? Keep this to yourself, but just write down a figure. Is it 1.7 million said their language was other than English? 2.4 million? 3.6 million or 4.2 million? So write that down. We'll give you the answers at the end. What was the most common other language? Was it Urdu, Polish, Romanian or Hindi? 
And the final question for you is, what percentage of the UK population will be from an ethnic minority or migrant background in around 2050? Will it be 14%, 26%, 38% or 50%? So we'll give you the answers after this. But first of all, um, the BBC commissioned some exclusive research asking questions like this. And Catherine Jemison from Ipsos is here today to tell us the results. So Catherine. So I'm going to show you some research now, um, which should give you a bit of an overview um, of a portrait of um, the world that kids are living in today. Um, I feel um, a little bit nervous after that W1A clip that we might be in a similar situation, but hopefully not. Um, so what this might mean for inclusivity. So I think for most of us in this room, um, when we think about childhood, it's very easy to think back to our own childhood. It, it typically um, evokes quite evocative memories um, of, of the world that we lived in. We think back fondly. So when we think about childhood, we often think about the way the world looked when we were kids. But actually, the world we live in today, that kids live in today, um, is very, very different. Um, we're living through a period of great upheaval, and kids are being born into this upheaval. And they only know the world as it looks to them. So us as adults can see the effect, effect of the past, we can make comparison, we can see the changes that have happened. But for kids, they're very much immersed in this new reality, which is much more diverse. So what does this new reality look like? Well, to start with, the population is very different than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. On a very basic level, the population's grown, and the population continues to grow. So we're expecting to be um, a country of 70 million people by 2027. This is partly due to immigration. This is also due to health. So we are living a little bit longer. And this means that the population is aging. And for kids, this means that actually they as young people will be in the minority in the future. We're already a diverse um, country. You'll see if anyone got the um, 4.2, they got that right. Um, but we're becoming even more diverse. So we're expecting more immigration. So the prediction is by 2050 that the proportion of people from ethnic minority and migrant backgrounds will be 38%, um, so over a third of the population. And this is obviously going to bring in a wide variety of cultural influences for today's kids. Families are also looking um, a lot different. Um, they're downsizing, so we're seeing the effect of the breakup of the traditional family unit, as we might understand it, but also um, newer emerging family units. So we're seeing smaller households, we're seeing more one-child-only households, and more one-parent families. Added to this, um, the growth and the rise of technology um, over the last few years has created what we might term as the culture of now. So kids growing up nowadays are, grown into, are growing into a world of technology where immediacy happens, where they can get instant gratification. So they're growing up in a, in a highly visual, connected, always-on world. So most homes now have internet access. Um, increasing numbers of children own smartphones and the rise of tablets over the last um, 
three or four years has been phenomenal. So we can see with the study that we do into kids who are online, um, the change in the devices that they've used from 2013 to 15 um, has gone from desktops being a key access point to tablets also being an access point. Now, sometimes with this type of thing, you see, okay, they've got a device in their house, but they're not using it. But if you see from the last um, seven days of data of what they've used, they are actually using tablets um, quite regularly. So it's not just a fad. Then we see how they're using these devices and the speed and the dexterity um, in which they're accessing content um, is, is always quite amazing to, to me as a researcher and I'm sure to those of you who are parents and, and, and watch this at home. Um, kids are able to personalise their content, they're flicking very quickly um, between um, different types of content, they're exploring, they're looking at new things out there. And certainly we see from the observational work that we um, do that short form content really suits um, this type of, um, of access point. So it's the pick up and pick down um, access that they really, really like. But what I would caveat here is that not every kid is online and certainly not every child has a tablet in their household, despite things like tablets for schools, um, trying to make sure that kids do have access. Um, what we see on screen is kids who have really quite high digital literacy, but there is a danger as we go forward that we create a digital divide. So we leave behind the kids who don't have access to this technology, and there are still definitely plenty of kids out there whose primary access point for content is for TV. So these social changes are creating different expectations, different attitudes between the generations that we have. Um, and these generations have come from very different starting points in terms of their technology um, and social change that they've seen. So Generation Next, who are sometimes referred to as Generation Z, um, are your audience. So they're your kids, they're your teens, um, and they've grown up um, as digital natives in this very internet-connected world. Generation X and increasingly Generation Y are at the age where they can be parents. Um, and they've seen quite a little bit of social um, change. They're not necessarily digital natives, but they've, they've adapted into this world. And this change in attitudes and change in technology affects how they bring up their kids and how their kids see the world. The boomers and the pre-war are at the age where they could be grandparents and parents. Uh, sorry, grandparents and great-grandparents even now. So if we look at how this has affected um, uh, attitudes, roles and identities have definitely shifting across, um, across generations. So the attitudes differ quite dramatically in terms of gender politics. So generation Y, who would be um, parents of quite younger kids now, um, are more likely to disagree than pre-war um, participants that a wife's job is to be in the home with the family. We're also seeing diversity um, more and more accepted, um, for example, in terms of sexuality. So um, parents are bigger supporters of gay relationships than perhaps older generations. And this is very much predicted to rise for the next generation of kids um, and teens. So um, all kind of positive in terms of diversity, but there is quite a lot of concern amongst younger generations about what the future holds for them. And sometimes we find that they, they feel that they're slightly more hard done by um, compared 
to previous generation, um, they don't really know what the future is going to hold for them. So what's driving this uncertainty um, and what's driving these social changes? Well, definitely we see the effects of globalisation um, on this. Um, and globalisation and the effects are, are worrying um, adults um, across ages. Um, this isn't necessarily a generation-specific um, thing, but adults definitely um, have the feeling that they're, they're not quite sure if they can deal with how fast things are moving. Um, and they're very anxious um, about, about the way things are moving and definitely desire a bit more simplicity in their lives. Now, kids aren't, um, aren't necessarily reacting in the same way, but they're likely to pick up on some of the anxieties that they're parents feel, particularly um, around immigration, I think is, um, is, is interesting for this session. When we look at the next generation, and this is teens that we're looking at, they're um, reacting in quite an interesting way. So older kids and teens, I think what I find quite interesting um, when we speak to them is that their aspirations are quite conservative. When you ask them, what do you want to be? What do you want in your life? They actually talk about getting married, having a house, settling down. Um, and their concern is, is not really, their key concerns are not about keeping up with trends or their appearance. It's about academic success and it's about jobs. Um, we also see um, that what you would term risky behaviours amongst children, so things like drinking and smoking, teen pregnancies, um, they're all de um, increasingly down, um, so much less, um, m many less children who are participating in them, which is quite interesting when you consider that this generation is potentially more sensible than their parents. Um, <laughs> a bit worrying. Um, and the, there could be many, many reasons for this, but uh, in part this might be do, to do with the effect of different, um, different communities, global viewpoints, um, and what's acceptable in terms of risky behaviour, but also because they're so worried about their future that they're not necessarily going to mess it up. What's also really interesting, and in some ways quite positive, is that they um, believe that success is down to the individual. They very much have um, entrepreneurial spirit, desire to earn their own success, be the best that they can be. Um, and they believe that they can succeed without barriers. So they believe that they can succeed without the barriers of gender and ethnicity getting in their way. Um, they do, however, think that their background will pay a part in their future success, and that may hold them back if they don't come from the right background. So, where does this leave us? Well, I think the challenge um, for content makers in the room is, is that the game has changed quite significantly, and it's not a simple picture. Um, technology, globalisation, differing generations, different viewpoints. It's, it's leading to people seeing the world through different lenses. And the world that kids are being born into is, is much more diverse and much more complex. So how do you create content that really works for that audience? Well, from the work that we do, we would suggest that authenticity is absolutely key to this. Kids that we see are very, very quick to reject content if it doesn't feel authentic to them. So inclusivity in this instance is about understanding kids' worlds and reflecting it in a way that feels very truthful 
um, to them. I think what's been interesting in the last couple of years is the way that awareness of what might have been considered a, a couple of years ago niche diversity issues have grown because of social media. So kids are getting exposed to the complexities um, beyond simple um, uh, gender and ethnicity. So gender politics, trans awareness, um, with obviously Caitlyn Jenner recently as a big example. Um, we've seen a lot of Twitter fightback campaigns where um, where teenagers and young people have been have been talking about how they feel about issues. So heard whilst disabled was was a big one recently. We've seen halal fashion on Instagram. And what's interesting about this is that young people are creating their own content. Um, they're challenging traditional media. And it's really, really important in terms of commercial success that people in this room stay ahead of that game. So where we've seen success lying um, when we evaluate content is, is where it takes a fresh take on the world and it talks to kids about a reality that they understand um, in a voice and a tone that feels truthful and authentic to them. So it's not about what we remember about our childhood. It's about how kids are seeing and experiencing the world today. Thank you. That's, thank you, um, Catherine. That was great. There's a couple of words there that I think are going to come up again. Authenticity is a big one. And the social media exposure has really changed, I think, the way yeah, um, kids are, are perceiving. So how many people said their language uh, was other in the last UK census? 4.2 million was correct. Did many people get um, that right? That's very good. And the most common other language? Polish. Who... Good, that's good. A few people there. And what percentage of the um, UK population will be um, BAM, BAME? Is that, sorry, the pronunciation, we don't have that term in Irish in 2050. So pronunciation is 38% is correct. Very few seem to have got that. Right, I mean, it's a very interesting, it's an interesting statistic. The audience is changing, becoming more diverse, and that, the, the question is how, what, that, how that impacts on our content. Um, the panel has considerable expertise in making content talk directly to the audience, and they're coming at it from different angles. So, first up, I just want to introduce them to you, and then we're going to go into case studies. Um, Kat Lewis is a BAFTA and RTS winning executive producer. She runs her own Manchester-based independent called Nine Lives Media. Nine Lives makes films for all the UK's major TV networks, including the ratings hit Small Teen Big World for BBC Three, which featured Welsh teenager Jazz who has dwarfism. And more recently, Kat and Nine Lives produced the first programme about a transgender child to be commissioned by CBBC for the My Life strand um, called I Am Leo, as well as Me, My Dad and His Kidney and the Burns Club. It's great to hear, Kat. Sue Needleman is a member of the Casting Directors Guild, the Sue, um, and a mentor at the National Youth Theatre. She's run her own successful casting business for over 25 years and cast for feature films and television drama productions across all channels. Sue has also cast many leading BAFTA award-winning children's drama, including Tracy Beaker Returns, The Dumping Ground, Young Drac, Old Jack's Boat and The Queen's Nose. That's great, Sue. 
Pat has worked in news, sport, commissioning and production across ITV, BBC and Channel 4 in the UK as well as leading the turnaround of major cable network travel channel media. Between 2010 and 2014, Pat ran BBC Production, the world's largest content creation business, as its chief creative officer, delivering shows including Top Gear, Strictly Come Dancing, Doctor Who, Frozen Planet and Luther. Married with three children ages 19 to 2. In March, Pat co-founded a new production company, Sugar Films, whose ambitions include mainstreaming diversity. You're welcome, Pat. And Sharna Jackson, finally, is the children's content creator and curator and director of creative content and interactive at Hopster, which is a TV and learning app for two to six-year-olds. Before joining Hopster, Sharna launched Tate Kids, which won Webby's, Lovey's and was nominated for a children's BAFTA three times. Sharna is a governor at a primary school in Rother... Rother... Rother Rother Heights. South East London. And I know the name. That's one word I thought I never have had to pronounce before. Oh, my God. Sorry, guys. That's what it is being Irish, you know. Um, And runs the popular games-based learning Twitter and LinkedIn uh, groups. So for the primary school in Rotherhide. No, I don't. They're they're, they're, um, separate activities. Separate. Great. Okay. We'll come to you at the end, China. Mm -hmm. First of all, Kat. Um, Kat, we're going to start with you and your content is often firmly focused on bringing unheard voices to screen. Why are you doing that? Well, what I'm really passionate about is the fact that television reflects people from every different part of our society and also that people from every different part of our society can make television because the two go together. If you have people from all parts of the country and all different backgrounds, then you will make better content. It creates um, a creative meritocracy, basically, and it means that people um, can, you know, with the very best ideas, get the opportunity to work in television. My whole career has been out of London, so it's something I'm really passionate about. And I just wanted to mention Tim Hinks's speech this week, because it's really worth listening to. It's really funny and entertaining. It was at BAFTA. Um, Lenny Henry gave his brilliant speech last year, which led to a lot of the, um, the great initiatives that are now happening in relation to diversity. And Tim's main message was about television being hideously middle class. Now, what I feel, as somebody outside London, is that's partly because it's become very London-focused. You know, you have to have a lot of money to stay in London to do a work experience placement, and that often means that you're from a different type of background. Tim said, for example, that 33% of the Endemol staff were privately educated. So I checked with my 25 staff, and none of us were privately educated, which is interesting. So there's a big difference, and I want to mention... The lady who is absolutely brilliant television maker, who created with Simon Cowell, The X Factor and Britain's Got Talent, are two of the most popular programmes in the country. And she was a 17-year-old teenage mum from Huddersfield who only works in television because of um, Granada in the old days. You know, that was her access point to television. And obviously Media City, the BBC's done a fantastic job creating 3,000 jobs, but we can't let it go. And I sit on quite a lot of national panels, including um, PACT. And it's quite frightening how sometimes the message isn't, isn't getting through. That, you know, I mean, I'm absolutely passionate about, um, you know, diversity in terms of all different people from all different backgrounds, as I've said. But it is classes an important issue. So I'm really glad that Tim's raised it. And I'm hoping that initiates another debate about how we can make sure you know, that television isn't just the preserve of, of the middle class and indeed the upper middle class, that people from all sorts of different backgrounds do carry on getting the opportunity to, to bring their ideas um, onto the screen. Now, as 
has been said, one of the things that we're passionate about in our company um, is making programmes with young people with disability. Um, that journey began really with Small Teen Big World back in 2009. Um, one of the things that I really believe as a programme maker is that when you tackle these subjects, it's very important for them to be empowering. And the way that we did that back in 2009 was to allow Jazz to voice her film. And it was actually quite you know, different at the time to have a young person with um, a very, you know, she, she is the height of a seven-year-old, so it is a very, very um, kind of different condition. She sees the world in a different way, and because she voiced it, that meant she was able to bring her direct experience to bear through that television programme. And the great thing is, as well as television being a unifying force, it can genuinely change people's attitudes. So that film was the highest rating um, one-off for BBC Three, so it did get a lot of viewers. It went, we went on to make another five films with Jazz, and it literally changed her life. She lives in Colwyn Bay in Wales, and she wasn't able to go out without people pointing at her, shouting at her, usually young lads. They didn't really know the effect they were having. They thought they were being funny, they were showing off in front of their mates, but they were bullying her, and that doesn't happen anymore. So it really has made a difference, and that's the wonderful thing about working in television, that we can make a difference. I'm passionate about making children's programmes because children aren't born with prejudice. So by introducing children to these issues at quite a young age, but obviously in a way that they understand, what that means is that you can end up um, you know, educating them raising awareness and widening the circle of compassion which is what to me documentary making is principally about so when it came to um i mean i've made a few programs um you know with with the disabled young people always allowing them to voice the programs and i'm going to show you a clip in the minute of i am leo and what we also did with i am leo is we got leo to do a video diary I was talking um, yesterday about the importance of kind of making sure that the young people you work with um, are resilient, and that's something we take very seriously. Um, Leo had already kind of told his story in the newspapers and on this morning about the fact that he was one of the first young people in the country to take hormone blockers. He was born in a girl's body, but he is a typical 14-year-old boy now. He was 13 when we made the film with him. And um, he was very keen to get his story out because he'd experienced bullying, not just from other pupils, but also from his teachers. And that's because of ignorance. Even his head teacher from his previous primary school had bullied him. And so, you know, it was really important that it was that we could make a programme that would um, that would show people what life was like from his perspective. Um, so. I just wanted to say that what we did in the programme, because this is actually towards the end of the programme, is we wanted to follow a, a narrative arc so that people, you know, were compelled to carry on watching good storytelling, beginning, middle and end. And so we spent a long time thinking about what we could do because, you know, his journey in many ways had al already started, been going on quite a long time. <coughs> but we still wanted to create that unfolding narrative that makes television um, compelling for us all as viewers and so we, we discovered that he didn't have a passport um, in as a, as a man what, what he'd done, or sorry as, as a male, you know as a boy so what he'd done is we discovered he'd actually defaced his passport um, as a girl, you know the girl passport with his, with his photo in it and everything because he, you know, he found it so offensive as a document because it didn't reflect who he was as a person so um, if we Show this clip if that's okay. I am Leah. I am proud of my me being trans. I'm proud of my gender, and I want every other trans person to look at themselves and think, I'm proud of who I am. 
yes, I've had like, like rubbish back in my life, but it's all made me the person I am today. That's how I feel. Because my word isn't like as strong as like actual proof. Like for kids who like ride past and shout like girl and stuff, I kind of like I've got the actual proof and like it's law as well, so it's a legal document. And like for the parents who think I'm too young, well the law don't think I'm too young, so I must not be. It's making big steps for trans people. I'm really proud. Kath, that's very powerful. It's a very powerful extract. We're going to move on to Sue. Um, Sue has been grappling with when to start considering diversity in the production process for many years. Sue. Okay, so um, I'm just going to talk about diversity in casting today. Now, I have the good fortune to work with CBBC, who I believe really trailblazed the whole question of diverse casting. And it's so well illustrated in many of their shows none more than a very popular series called The Dumping Ground, which I cast and I'm going to focus on today. Now, in this show, with full support of CBBC, fantastic producers and directors, we tackle diverse casting head-on. When people say it can't be done, I am here to tell you it can and it is being done. In The Dumping Ground, out of a company of 14 regular young people, 50% are diverse, and that includes three disabled children none of whom are defined by their disability. They are just one of the gang. Storylines never focus on their diversity. They really, and that's exactly how it should be. In fact, I think it's the casting process leading up to their inclusion, which is partly the key to this successful integration. It doesn't come under the remit of normal casting. And the key factor that needs to be taken into consideration is time, because you'll invariably be dealing with large companies charitable organisations, schools, relying on parents or people reading about it, and often this comes by newsletters, social media, and it's not something that can be done on a whim. It is quite a painstaking process and does require a lot of tenacity and patience. The whole casting process for this is more entailed. Um, and more time consuming, you, you know, your casting director will have to thoroughly research, phone, beg and persuade everyone to get the word out there because sadly these kids aren't as easy to access. But when you do, the rewards far outweigh anything else. And encouragingly, the more times you go through the process, the easier it becomes to access children. And I obviously, on, on the journey, I talk to a lot of parents, and the overriding thing that constantly comes up from both parents and the children is that they're so pleased that these children are being represented and included on television and being given a voice. And I think where possible, filmmakers and broadcasters have a moral obligation to ensure that everyone is looked at equally and is represented. In some cases, just the mere fact that they're coming in for an audition is a hugely positive experience. And I will bang the drum again for CBBC because they are ace at this and they're hugely supportive of our casting decisions. And I don't precast for these sessions. 
the producers and directors sit in on and we see everybody and we do see some really fantastic kids and it's true that sets have to be adjusted and money has to be spent and we all constantly work with restricted budgets but it is all possible and it is a really worthwhile investment um, invariably we decide that we decide up front that we're going to cast a role diversely but sometimes we do just arrive at it without any preconceptions and that is the holy grail to, to casting this to have all kids considered for all parts and in truth that is still a work in progress so have you seen any percentage like have you, you you talked about having to see a lot of kids and that you see everybody over the years that you've been doing this you, you know has the number of kids you will view go up in order to get the right one is there any kind of percentage change because you mentioned it's expensive and it's just time consuming and yeah. the kids don't present themselves no. in you, you know the diversity doesn't necessarily yes. present itself in the way that it did in the past yes or in the way that in the past people presented themselves so have you got any kind of percentage yeah, I, I think it's definitely it's definitely it's it's going up I mean when we started about I think seven years ago and we were casting our first disabled kid and we didn't have time we had like five weeks to find 11 children um, and we had to keep this kid in Newcastle and we saw I think we cut we saw 12 and where there were two main contenders for the part mm. um, and this year we've just cast a, a, a kid in a wheelchair and because we had time we actually interviewed 45 children across the country and we had a shortlist of about 12 um, and we, we, yeah, we shortlisted and we recalled 12 and out of that 12 there were a good half dozen contenders. So basically the yes. more you're doing this and we're the thinking more about them for guest, guest roles in other, yeah. you know, in other episodes coming up. Yeah. So it is increasing and it's just getting the word out there yeah. and the more access you have to them yeah. the yeah. easier it becomes. Yeah, be, and I'm just curious about factual, like the relationship between factual because um, you're looking for catcher, you look for youngsters who've got a particular point of view and the, the documentaries you've made, I mean, are they hard to cast to find the right stories? Or Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question because I think that what often happens is that the young people cast themselves. Um, so with Leo, you know, as I say, he had already talked about his story yeah. and um, that helped us in terms of his resilience, but it yeah. also meant that, you know, um, it, it was a case of kind of going with him. I mean, fortunately, he was amazing, you know, he's a fantastic communicator. That video diary, he said, was terrible. We had to keep persuading him to record it, and he kept telling the production team, it's terrible, this video diary, you know, I don't know why you're going, don't bother watching it. Mm. He honestly kept repeating that, and when you think what, what's in it, you know, thank goodness we did watch it. But is there a sense that you know, the more of these documentaries you make, the more youngsters who have a different point of view will be yes. willing to come forward yeah, they to tell often the write to us, which is fantastic. Mm. And is there a backlash? Or, I mean, do you see within their own communities? Because that's quite an exposing thing to do in the jazz series. You know, yeah, there, has, there hasn't been a backlash yet. Yeah. It has always been um, positive. I mean, obviously, you have to protect children from kind of Twitter and social media, you know, where people can be more hurtful, yeah. you know, than they necessarily would be in person. But... Um, there certainly hasn't. We're yeah. in touch with all our contributors yeah. all the time, and yeah. we, we haven't heard of, of Leo having yeah. any negative feedback. The same with Jazz. I mean, there were a couple of letters to CBBC, um, you know, that were negative from parents, mm. but actually um, the positive feedback outweighed that, and, and CBBC and, and ourselves, we received a number of letters from transgender yeah. children who, who really felt um, that it was transformative mm. for them. So it's a question of finding very mm. distinctive voices, which is what, mm. you know, and then actually putting those images on screen. Pat, you've been doing this for a long time and have a range of views. Over to you. 
been trying to do it for a long time. Yeah. Uh, with yeah. varying degrees of success. Campaigning for us. I've been campaigning for it for a long time, and I'll probably be campaigning for it till the day I die because you know the world gets more diverse, and and we all keep we all keep learning. Um, so I'm going to start what I say today from a very simple premise, and that's that parents want their kids to see themselves reflected on television. Um, when I was growing up, we had Floella Benjamin, and we had Derek Guiler. Those of you who remember him. Um, I've got three kids. Um, the oldest two. Um, grew up in the age of Fizz and Milo and we discussed long and hard whether Milo's black hair was really meant to be dreadlocks or not in the tweenies uh, but increasingly they got a lot of their reinforcement from Disney from Keenan and Cal and all those American series my youngest child Isaac who's uh, two and a half um, he can't watch anything for not being sort of given a broad diverse array of people um women disabled people uh, a mix of races even diversity within postman pat um so in terms of the numbers the numbers are much much better than they used to be um i get and it does matter when i was in, in the 1990s i was doing some audience research for the bbc and we were researching black audiences and we asked them sort of what do you watch and when and what do you watch at certain times and we did these groups all over the country and they kept saying, yeah, at six o'clock, we watch Trouble. Uh, and we said, oh, Trouble? Yeah, no, no, small cable channel on the on the periphery of our knowledge. Why do they watch Trouble? Because Fresh Prince was, was on. There's a reason why the Fresh Prince of Bel Air is still on television today. Because black parents are still using it as a means to show their kids black people doing stuff which isn't, um, you know, uh, news related. Um, so, Audiences will seek out that stuff that gives them their kids some degree of self-reflection. Kids television, let me just make this very clear, kids television is a million times better than the rest of the industry. It puts the industry to shame. So what I'm saying here is not, I'm not battering kids television. You're miles ahead of everybody else, but I think you, you are challenged. Uh, because I think it's about more than numbers, it's actually about authenticity. This is my current fave um, female on television. Katie Morag. Uh, I don't know if you've watched Katie Morag. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I know it's based on a fictional novel, but you get a real sense of what life in the Outer Hebrides was like. It's not turned into an issue, you know, but she has the freedom to roam. She talks about the tides because that's what part of day-to-day -day life is out there. She has Granny on the island and Granny on the mainland. And, you know, they live in the post office. She's also the shop and they have Kayleys in the evening. And it's not you know, it's not a sociology study on the Outer Hebrides, it's the Outer Hebrides as a backdrop for an authentic, well-written, well-acted, well-produced television series. And I think for other minorities, that is absolutely lacking in TV, notwithstanding the Dumping Ground and uh, Tracy Beaker, which are within the confines of a care home, in terms of other environments, it, it's absolutely lacking. Uh, what might that authenticity look like? I just want to show you a scene from How to Get Away with Murder. Uh, and Viola Davis. Now, what's remarkable about that scene is that it's remarkable, um, or that people consider it to be remarkable. Six out of ten black women wear wigs or some form of hair extension. That's a part of the daily routine of most black women, uh, many of them mothers who have children. Never seen on TV, 
not just in the kids space never seen in the adult space that's what makes that rather unremarkable piece of black life sort of stick out and when it happened twitter went wild and if you put youtube if you put viola davis hair you go straight to that um because it's much searched and much commented on um so what needs to be done to improve authenticity because that's what this is about authenticity first thing i think we all have to do uh and myself and everybody else on the panel as well is accept that biases exist. We are in a subjective industry. Uh, something I like and something you dislike doesn't make me right and you wrong. It's just two different views on the same thing. But we are in an, in we are in an industry where people's views on what's good content and bad content matter. Uh, and I think the diversity of people you have involved in taking those decisions tends to lead to better decisions. Here's one of my worst decisions. Um, this is um, 1996, the West Indies, where my parents are from the Barbados. The all-powerful West Indies cricket team have just lost to Kenya in the 1986 World Cup. This is the equivalent of Manchester United losing to Barrow in Furness. Um, this is what you call a genuine upset. Number three in the top ten upsets of World Cup cricket. Now, I was running a show at the time, and we did a piece on this, and we did a piece about the demise of West Indies cricket. And we looked at the growth of American influence in the Caribbean, the growth of basketball and baseball, more kids playing soccer, while cricket was unattractive, infighting between the different islands within the West Indies board. We put it out, we felt quite proud. And then one of the guys on my team, an African guy, said to me, don't you think that was an opportunity, Miss, to do the rise of African cricket? And he's absolutely right. And that has stuck with me since 1996 as... Um, a sort of wake-up call to constantly challenge my own biases and my own preconceptions. And it's why in your companies you need a range of different voices and different backgrounds and different opinions. And even more importantly, in commissioning uh, and in the leadership of production in the UK, we need a broader range of backgrounds and voices. Yeah, currently at the moment, frankly, they all go to the same place, they all read the same books, they all holiday in the same places, and they all have the same broad set of experiences. And that's why it's quite hard to get anything which is normal to us but different to them uh, through the commissioning gates. So first of all, you need diversity within your company and we need it within the top of the industry. Second thing, and this may annoy Cat, but London actually matters. Um, you know, there may be 14% of ethnic minorities in the UK, but in London it's over 50% of the population are ethnic minorities. And whilst I have been uh, a big supporter of moving production to Scotland and to the north, um, what you're actually doing is moving production away from where all the black and brown people live. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, not a very well-kept secret that the BBC's performance is worse in London than it is in Scotland or Northern Ireland or the north of England. And that's because London is disproportionately young, black and poor, and they are the three audience groups that the BBC do, do worse with. So... You know, and things, when people talk about concerns over immigration, and I can see a whole bunch of commission editors' buttocks tightening and things getting a bit more vanilla, there isn't concern over immigration in London. UKIP didn't do anything in London, actually. It's one part of the country where Labour did well. So that's the second thing that I'd say. The, the final thing is about speed. We haven't got long to do this, and this is a slide um, uh, from a, a guy. It's not a very good slide, but it's a slide of a guy called Kurt Carlson who has a brain the size of a planet and he heard the Stanford Research Institute, and he said, in a period of exponential growth or in an exponential time, if you improve your performance incrementally, you fall behind exponentially. What does he mean? 
If the world is moving exponentially, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, and you improve 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, in year 2, you're still in touch with the real world, but by year 5, you're 15 points off. And if you look at what's happening with ethnic minority community growth, it doubled in the last 10 years in the UK. In London, every age group under the age of 20 is ethnic minority. We don't have time to sort of nasal gaze. We have to sort of start moving now. So if I had one request, it would be speed. That's great. Thanks, William Pat. <laughs> Hi everyone, so I'm, I'm Shana and um, like the introduction said, I am currently at Hops TV which is a TV learning platform for kids who are um, aged 2 to 6, but for um, a big chunk of time before that I worked at the Tate Gallery where I started something called Tate Kids which um, was chiefly an online uh, destination for children aged 5 to 11 to get them really engaged and enthused about um, art around the world in our, in our collection. And um, I kind of just want to talk about the differences between my time at Tate and um, and Hopster because they are just completely different. Um, start with the, with the diversity question. There's stuff in here um, we can unpack about digital accessibility, um, considerations that we should be making to make sure that uh, the things you make digitally um, work for as, as wide an audience as wide an audience as possible. So I'll just briefly touch on some of those. So you know, keeping text minimal for children who can't who can't read or understand understand audio being able to be turned on and off ensuring your experience works across all the platforms you're intended to so if it's um uh it's touch first it actually does work on touch and if you want it to work on a desktop then you can also use it with a mouse but that, that they're, they're kind of um technical things that i wanted to to touch on um and at hopster we um have developed it for for all children but actually what was quite interesting was parents with children on the autism spectrum would talk to us and say actually my child really loves the environment that you've created around these programs um so that led me to start thinking about how well how could i super serve that audience and help provide content that they might not be getting elsewhere so we are partnering up with um uh, an interactive designer uh heli carmen lewis who um who himself is on the um autism spectrum and we're working to uh, develop activities within the app for those children and um, it's not just because we're altruistic and we um, and we uh, we just think it's you know it's it's magical there is you know there are business considerations to this too let's be real the more people who like your product the more revenue you're going to make so that's something we um, we're, we're mindful of um, and in our in the workplace itself it's it's very diverse. Actually, I say it's diverse. There's more Spanish people at Hopster for some reason than any other any other uh, nationality. But we've got people from Norway, from Spain. We have people who are homosexual. We have people who are slightly disabled. Um, um, and it's not that we have um, particularly gone out to to have that spread. It's I think it's the way we we are recruiting and advertising for our staff. So we don't. We, well, we can't afford to put ads in the Guardian or broadcast or anything like that, and we're not interested in that. We are going to places like Silicon Roundabout, which are startup events. We're going to Twitter and Facebook and social and putting the word out that way. And we're not asking people to have first degrees and, and a big contacts book and all those kind of things. We're just asking people to come and work on a, on a good project and bring the best they can. And I think that's been able to give us that really great spread 
of, of, of people. So at Tate, I can tell you that was completely not the case. Um, so, I mean, when you, when you work in the arts, the arts are, they're hard to access. And if you're not confident around art, going into a gallery can be really intimidating. And for me, um, I always wanted to work in the arts, so I was always engaged and strive to do it. But it was really hard because the salaries were really low and you, and you have to live in London, obviously, and, and you can't survive on a, on a cultural, uh, cultural sector wage, really. Um, and while I was at Tate, I noticed that a lot of... We did free ad hoc internships for friends' daughters. And it just, it was frankly bullshit because people, I mean, how, how are you supposed to break into the arts if those opportunities are just given to people who actually don't even really want them? Um, so when I was asked by my, my then boss to give some work to his friend's daughter, I refused. And um, but then it was, I'm not going to take credit for it, but it was part of um, a bit of a change at Tate where we started paying and properly recruiting for, for internships. So that, that was good, but I think, I mean, they've still got a long way to go, and um, it was really quite ironic. They hired um, a diversity officer, and um, at, at, Tate, at that time, there were two black women at, at my kind of level, and we were at the bus stop, and she was talking to me about some utterly random thing, and it was because she had confused me with, with the other lady, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm the other one, Sarah. I'm the, I'm the other one. So yeah, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of work uh, to be done. Um, so I think for, I think uh, touching back on in my introduction about Rotherhithe, the school that I work at, the, Rotherhithe is a, is a deprived area in London and Rotherhithe Primary School has particularly got a bad rep because it's in the middle of like, like literally five tower blocks. It's a little school in the middle and people just assume the kids from there, they, just, they write them off, but they're really lovely, warm, brilliant kids. And um, as a governor there, I really wanted to bring them into Tate and get them to experience art and see if, if anyone, um, any of them really engaged with it and wanted to, you know, wanted to find out more. So when, I think it was back in 2012, there were some proposed changes to the curriculum. They were going to bring in something called the EBAC. Um, and we made, I made a bit of a propaganda piece, if I'm being honest, um, with, um, with the Rother Heights School. So I just want to show you a quick clip, if that's okay. Hi, my name is Paolo and I'm from Rother Primary School and these are my friends. We are working alongside Tate Britain in an urge to make the government allow creative subjects in EBAC, which is replacing GCSEs from 2017. What's your favourite way to be creative? My favourite way to be creative is of all my years at making pictures and on paper with paint. My favourite way to be creative is um, in song. Like if I am feeling happy, I sing a jolly song. And if I'm feeling sad, I sing a gloomy song. And could you, would you mind just showing the other clip as well? This is where they um, two students went to interview uh, Sir Nick. Nicholas Rota, the um, head of Tate. Why do you care so much about these changes? I think when you think about the world, you think so much of the world is about the culture and the arts and the world around you, and I think they ought to be part of the things that you learn about at school. What do you think will happen to the arts if the government changes go ahead? 
I think that the arts will suffer because I think that in the long term people will value them less. It means we'll have fewer museums, fewer theatres, somehow it'll put the arts in a place in society when they feel as though they're marginal rather than central. Thank you for taking the time to answer these questions. We really appreciate it. Well, I want to thank you for the questions, but also for taking the time to come here and to join the campaign. I, so I guess, um, just to like wrap up my bit, my takeaway would be is to just make the effort. Make the effort to know more people and listen to those people and get their voices into your work. Very good. <laughs> Um, so we've we've heard a range of points of view, and it's like it's very interesting the different angles people come from. We're going to come for questions from from the audience. Can I just ask for one golden rule, and then we come to you immediately? If there was one thing that you were to say, you know, well, that is very important. I mean, um, Kat, uh, nine lives made a difference. Your the the approach that you have taken has made a difference to your company. There are commercial gains, aren't there? Yeah, I think I, th I think there are. I mean, it's not my motivation to be honest, but I do think you know, as as was said, it, you know, when you're running a company, you've got to consider it. Um, we we kind of make more commercial documentaries, which then subsidise the work we do here. Yeah. But obviously, um, when we make kind of one-off films, you know, um, it, it is helpful to the company if they if they're good and they they raise the profile. Good. Yeah, Sue, if you were to if you were to say the I main takeaway, just open your eyes and it gets easier going forward is that one of the things that you would say yeah i think no. it does it, it it does the more people that try and get out there and look for diverse kids wherever they are particularly disabled kids the easier it becomes yeah. you know and they just get more used to the whole audition process most of them have never done it before yeah. so it's just getting out there and you're taking the time because they're great when you meet them they're great they've got a lot to yeah. offer and past the authenticity in this um authenticity but yeah. also um learn, appoint people who are not like yourself yeah and yeah, learn to feel comfortable yeah. with being uncomfortable yeah that's great and yeah. sharina I, I have to second what pat said actually yeah yeah you know it's not yeah. you know you're not going to like what you hear sometimes but you need to deal with it so, this, it, this real discussion is very good mm -hmm. you know if you learn how to moderate real discussion well then it opens a lot for question first question over over there do you want to tell us who you are? Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. Um, so my name's Simon. I'm from Flashing Lights Media. So we're a deaf-led TV production company. So we made Magic Hands. We did an episode on my life. And I agree, in terms of content and what's been portrayed on TV, I absolutely agree. When we speak to commissioners, when we go to spe speak to BBC, Channel 4, it's never about if the child's disabled, if it's about contributing to being disabled. It's about good content. Mm. And we bring those good stories. So I absolutely agree with that. The problem we face is... We're all about bringing in good stuff. We want fantastic producers, we want fantastic directors and APs, but we can only bring them in during productions. So we have fantastic deaf people coming in who work with, uh, work with us, but outside of productions, they, they can't work anywhere else. No one's interested. So I want to tell one story about one particular person that sort of sums up that situation. So for Magic Hands, I offered a job to a production manager. He worked with us a couple of years ago. He went on to, to work at Channel 4. So his career is just going up and up. Then there were the cuts to access to work, and he couldn't work at Channel 4 anymore. He lost his job. So he's completely gone out of television. He works in a sort of an okay sort of admin role outside of television. And I said to him recently, I was like, look, I'd love to offer you the job as PM for Magic Hands. And he turned it down. He said, I'm completely scarred by television. I can't go back. Because if I take the job with you, nine months production, 
What do I do afterwards? Where do I go? Who would hire me? I'm deaf. So I just wanted to ask the panel, what can we do to make sure disabled people particularly can continue to work in TV, regardless of their disability? I mean, I think it's a really good point. I think there is a lack of representation of people with disabilities, you know, in television. And I think we all need to, to work harder to kind of, you know, when we think of inclusion and making sure we, we employ from a range of different backgrounds, that's, that's really important. It should be next year's BAFTA Guru lecture. I mean, it, the industry is becoming more and more casualised. That is just a byproduct of of how the economics is playing through the industry and that's impacting all sorts of people not just disabled people but also people from low-income backgrounds and you know people who've got other obligations um i don't to be honest i don't know the answer i know when i was at bbc in-house we deliberately set out to try and employ some disabled people but the way in which commissions work now which is that the commission is much closer to the point when the project is greenlit you know they say right we want it and we want it in three months so even with the might of the BBC and, and a willingness to make physical changes to buildings and structures in order to allow us to employ good disabled people that we found, we never had enough time from, you know, the commission came in June and they wanted it in October. Uh, we never had the time. We, we actually had to, or they were, I don't know if they still are, trying to look at ways if they can get ahead of the commissioning decision to make changes to enable them to employ more disabled people because that was a real challenge question back there. Hi, Angela Ferreira from Adjoy Media. Um, I wanted to ask a question about casting. Um, and it's fantastic to have integrated, um, diverse, blind casting. But sometimes I do worry, and this might be my particular sensitivity, that um, quite often when it is integrated, is it the, the casting is in, in, is in a slightly negative context. So um, the point I'm making is that last year I did have a run-in with somebody on a, on a panel like this about Emma Dale and Coronation Street, where they'd cast two black girls in quite, sort of quite major guest roles, but both of them were horrible, nasty bullies. So from my point of view, I don't really, I didn't really see any value in them being there, and I do think that that does ha happen quite often, where the the casting is not always in terribly positive situations. So I'm interested to know what the panel think about that. Well, yes, I, I mean, I, I'm going to talk, I'll throw it back to sort of ch children's TV and I think it absolutely, where I think it absolutely isn't. And I think that, and I think that they're shown in very positive lights, in, in, yeah, in a very positive light. Um, but but you, you can get that with all characters. You know, I don't think, I, th I think you should be kind of colorblind about it. I don't think, you know, it, you get nasty characters in all, you know, different dramas. I, I think, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't kind of highlight that particularly. Can I just yeah. respond? Yeah. I mean, if you talk to black actors, they love the nasty roles. <laughs> and the, the problem is, is less the, the black actors doing nasty roles and, and more the absence of other roles that, yeah. that give you some yeah. sense of balance. I also think there is an issue around colourblind casting. Colourblind casting is great, but people still have colour, and that colour often reflects a background. And somebody famously said, and I was very proud of Luther, and I think Idris is a rock star. I'd have his children. Um, <laughs> but um, as with everybody else, probably. But um, somebody said in a session, I was like, why does he have no black friends? And it's true. There isn't anything about his hinterland, and we all know he's a loner, that suggests he has another black person in his life, not even a black parent. Um, mm. And so colorblind is great, but people still need to be authentic. Yeah. 
Hello, I'm Alison. I'm a writer and I work with um, a company called Road, which is a, a multi-ability company in, in Liverpool. And I'm a working class writer. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm still ongoingly concerned about how the government and the courts are, we're cancelling out, so I think it was up there, it said 40, was it 40% of young people or families that don't have um, devices to access stuff. Now that's shocking, that's just under half of kids that aren't going to have access to these things that are going to be excluded from playground conversations and you know it's it's really important as well that that we, ju we just all have to band together so the th having Jenny Jenny Seeley did the keynote last night and it was excellent but she had to do a basic call to arms really to say please tell our stories and please make noise for us because of all the disability cuts and I think the same could be said for, for working class communities as well with austerity so I would like to see authenticity as well in, in those disabled family roles and in working class families. It's all right to be working class and to see how that looks on a screen. Mm. I'm working class. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. No, behind you, this There's a guy over there. Yeah, we've had somebody working for us recently who, because uh, of the benefit cut changes, um, has, um, is a mature graduate with three kids. Um, and we've had to let him go because the benefit system won't allow him to gain um, professional work experience. But I had a question. Um, uh, I'm Catherine Fettel Animation. What's the difference between a show being worthy and a show being entertaining that deals with these issues? What's what a sort of checklist to kind of keep your your well, show? I mean, there's um, one point that I. I'm, I meant to mention before actually because I do think it's golden rule for all of us, which is. Um, about kind of incidental representation and so I think that that's really important you know if you're in making a show and you need a family you know don't just and this is why the more people from different backgrounds that are employed in television the more diverse the content's going to become because it's really important just to choose a family from a different background why you know and when I say that I mean because I'm white not a white background you know and that's something that all of us can do and kind of in news um, and current affairs programs as well as in children's programs all those shows it's really important you know to have expert voices from a range of different backgrounds and the BBC has been doing quite a lot on that recently but you know we can all do it within our programs you don't have to make a big issue um, about a, having a particular person you know you need to interview a kid about iPads interview a kid in a wheelchair mm -hmm. the ideal situation will be when we're not talking about diversity you know diversity is, is editorial and editorial is when you actually represent a full society and I mean that's coming back to your point but actually society is reflected in itself can that's I also say to your point at the front yeah, um, yeah. I may not work for the BBC anymore, but it's why the BBC matters. Um, and, you know, the BBC is under an attack, the sort of which probably most of us have never seen. And whether you work for the BBC or you work for an indie, you know, go to another country and experience public broadcasting and then look at what we have here. And, you know, they've just lost the Olympics. Um, you know, they're going to lose other things. They're about to cut another thousand jobs. Don't think that kids is going to be immune from all of that unless we get a decent license fee settlement so it is time to speak up for the BBC. I promised you a question is it very fast or is it sorry <laughs> I'm just conscious of time. Okay. Uh, my name's Tom Lavery I'm an animator um, I just had a simple question really uh, obviously with uh, representation being so important in children's media uh, age race uh, gender all that does religious representation 
hold the same weight? Or are those different rules? Like representing people's faiths and backgrounds and how that could really drive a character. Is that as significant as, say, gender and race? Are there different things you need to think about uh, to avoid, are there rules or regulations in that you don't want to just start, feel like you're propagating beliefs that other people would feel offended to have imposed on them? Like, what's, what's the panel's stance on that? It's a great question. I wouldn't yeah, do a game on the crusade. I wouldn't reinvent the crusades <laughs> as a game. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, I think it does come back to authenticity. It's about being authentic, and that probably means bringing in... I mean, there are various codes and guidelines on religion. Um, the BBC has them, Ofcom has them. But it's about bringing in people who understand those religions and engaging them in the design of your animation or the game. I think it's a perfectly legitimate area to, mm. to be creative in. Mm. Um, but you need to be authentic. Sorry about that. that. It came at the end. No, I mean, it was a terrific range. It's great to get so many questions. That has been terrific. Thank you very much Thank to the panel. Much.